welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. This recording takes place at the Welcoming Gertrude's Writing Room on the grounds of the historic Willisted Manor in Windsor. Many thanks to author and workshop facilitator Vanessa Shields for welcoming us to this space. Does historical fiction have to, uh, to follow historical fact to be credible? It's something I've always wondered about. What are your thoughts? Um, I think you do have to have a little bit of historical fact in historical fiction. I mean, every good lie has a little truth in it. So in order to keep the story together, it's got to have some sort of a grounding. Otherwise, it just sort of gets lost up in the clouds. So. Yeah, I think it needs, um, it's good to have a framework that you can build your, your headspace around. Um, and I love it when books include the minutiae. Where does somebody go to the latrine? Or how does somebody run the back end of a traveling inn? Um, that kind of thing. I like to see, I like those little details of, of what goes on, and I think that adds it. So from there, you can tell me, you know, the, the woman rode the dragon into the inn, but I've already seen the potatoes being boiled, so I think it's perfectly reasonable, you know. I have a very similar perspective, too. I mean, on one hand, I want to see a lot of detail that really brings me into the story, that makes me feel as though I'm right there in that setting. And once that's been established, I feel like everything else is pretty credible. I'm willing to accept little deviations from the norm of that historical period if there's been enough scene setting that makes it feel real to me. I do have to say, recently, I read a piece of writing about Underground Railroad travelers to our area, um, in which the writer spoke of their starting uh, frozen yogurt um, businesses. And after that, I just couldn't read anymore because it was just so ludicrous. But I appreciated the opportunity to laugh with all my friends about it. <laughs> well, yeah. there is that. I mean, there is that, that concept called the willing suspension of disbelief, which is what all fi fiction is based on. And yeah, frozen yogurt in the 1800s probably wasn't going to go there. So... <laughs> Right. What's really interesting is, is the development of women characters in historical fiction because we've seen so little of that and now we're seeing more. Um, and it's interesting when it starts to be based on letters and uh, diaries and interesting writing because we, we've just always seen it from the Nigel Tranterish or the... Um, the, you know, um, white, uh, Jack White kind of um, battle kind of ready scenes with women on the sidelines. So it's interesting for, for that, I w to see women, but to see the rounded picture of women. That's and right. I really feel that way about all of the voices uh, previously excluded from historical fiction that are now centerpieces in so much historical fiction. It's just great to see those other groups and, you know, capital O, other voices represented in a better way, in a more um, complete and accurate way, and in a way that's not through sort of a white male gaze. Mm -hmm. Who gets to tell the story? 
Alistair used to ask that question all the time. Many presentations, many classes, he opened with that. Who gets to tell the story? So, <laughs> our own Alistair McLeod, I should say. Um, okay. All right, so I'm going to I'm, I have the pleasure of introducing our first guest tonight. Uh, Marion and I have known each other for about as long as I have lived in Canada. L- we don't want to say how long. <laughs> like me, she grew up with British parents in Harrow, Ontario. Marianelle Thorpe recently retired as a special education supervisor at a school district in Ontario. Marion decided to go back to what she's always wanted to do and be a writer. Author of the alternative world medieval trilogy, Empire's Legacy, Marion has also published short stories and poetry. Her lifelong interest in Roman and post-Roman European history informs her novels, while her avocations of landscape archaeology and birding provide background to her settings. As well as writing and editing professionally, Marion oversees Arboretum Press, a small publishing imprint run as a collective. Marion is currently writing Empire's Reckoning, the next book in her series. Marion and her husband, Brian, live in Guelph and spend part of their year in Marion's family's ancestral home in Norfolk, England. That made it sound like you have a castle in Norfolk. It did. <laughs> but you're really just down the road yeah. from a castle. That's correct, yes. the neighbors, yeah. yes. Well, welcome. <laughs> and your whole busy career that you had that must have... It, You know, those sorts of careers are not a job. They're a lifestyle. Uh, How did you manage to transition from your busy career to writing? That's a really good question, Sarah. The first book, um, I think I've told you this before, the first book, Empire's Daughter, took me a dozen years at least to write. Uh, Writing in between work and on summer holidays, and I can remember writing part of it in a campground in the Chiricahua Mountains in Arizona while Brian was off not getting eaten by bears. <laughs> and, um, um, but somewhere towards the end of my teaching and education career, I, and I was just working you know, enormously hard. I'm not going to pretend I wasn't. And doing a lot of taking care of my elderly parents at that time. I just needed an escape from everything else, and so I just focused more and more on the writing. I think what suffered was sleep. <laughs> but... What was your gateway genre? What medium of writing was your gateway to all of this? Poetry, actually. The first things I was, I first things I published as an adult. I'm going to forget what I published as a teenager. Uh, what was poetry? And from there, it was. Did I do it? No, the short stories came later. So I wrote the, the poems. Got some good feedback. Some you know some publication. And somewhere in there, about the same time, started the books book. I didn't know it was going to be a trilogy. I didn't know it was going to be a series. <laughs> so um, strong female characters are sort of the backbone of your uh, fiction, we understand. Um, it would seem that you had flipped from that sort of traditional historical net, and we talked about point of view yes. a moment ago, and made women the center of society, which I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that they have their own world. It's like Wonder Woman in, in historical garb, <laughs> unlikeness. So um, how, did, how did that all come to you? How did that narrative approach come to you? Oh, from a number of a number of different things I already knew about and I was always interested in sort of meshed part of the large part of the inspiration for or what's behind the books was my mother's and my aunt's experience in World War II they were both uh, enlisted members of the of the army in in Britain they served both served under General Eisenhower um, at uh, the Supreme Headquarters Allied 
European forces at Versailles in France. And I had another, she's a cousin, really, because she's my father's first cousin. She was in the Danish resistance. And she could tell you even at 95, she could talk about taking a brand gun apart and putting it back together again in the dark. And so there was this whole experience of, of warfare from a woman's point of view, and that whole disruption of their lives when the war started. Um, and suddenly they were expected, my mother volunteered, my aunt, I believe, was drafted, they were expected to serve. And that must, I, that disconnect, that, that in their lives, for this to happen, for something that they'd never expected, is where I really started with the idea the women's villages, the separation of men's lives and women's completely, is roughly based on Sparta, where that was very much how they lived much of the time, except the women had male slaves and older men living with them, and I just decided not to do that at all. I would just do a completely separate women's society um, based on a decision made at a uh, an assembly several 20 generations earlier. So... So that was it. And the other part of it is my father's influence. Um, as Sarah Wells well knows, he was an amateur historian. And he had a really strong interest in very strong women leaders. So he, through osmosis practically, because also because I would read anything, and so he bought books and I read them, uh, I learned about women like Eleanor of Aquitaine and Elizabeth I and Victoria to some extent, but and other women who were very strong leaders at their time. Eleanor of Aquitaine led a crusade. Um, they were also extremely well-educated, which is something that isn't always considered for that time and uh, that era. So it was really that those combinations of things. And then I wanted a bit to, to bring in a... Um, a more fluid sexuality into it. I didn't want very defined sexual sexual roles, and so I introduced that too and stuck it in this period that I've always been fascinated by. So mm -hmm. that's really the genesis of the series. In so, the style of a Civil War reenactment or something, I kind of want to do like an immersion weekend experience in this <laughs> sort of genre, in this milieu. Can that be arranged? <laughs> oh, if I find talk to the local, um, what are they, Creative for Society Anachronism, we probably could. Okay, get on it. I was going to ask a question about your father's influence. Um, it's, that's really interesting that from a young age you were brought up to sort of see this other side of the yeah. world. So when you were young, were you like, oh, Dad, not again? Or were you, were you interested? No, I was interested. I, my father's family is a little unusual in, in the fact that very almost none of the women in his family, um, on his side of the family, have children. Um, they all chose, even three or four generations ago, chose careers over children, I'm guessing, um, because most of the career women at that time were also unmarried. So I grew up with this really strong sense of very strong women who did things other than than be traditional uh, wives and mothers. And so I think I was drawn to it anyway because of the, the family influence. And then when he started to say, well, here, read, the, read this about... It was very, very much of this very subtle, you might want to read this, you know, so I think he was very much trying to bring us, my sister and I, and my sister's undergraduate degrees in history, so she, he had quite an influence on her too, to be non-traditional. 
Excellent. So he wanted to. He wanted you to be able to think and do for yourselves yes. and be independent yes. in that way. Yes. He was actually very disappointed when I stopped being a research scientist and decided to go into education because he said I could do better than that, which was his opinion, but not mine. I'm glad I did what I did, but he was was disappointed in that. In that spirit of independence and doing it for yourself, you've started your own publishing company. Yes. Is there a particular focus to that endeavor? Uh, The focus is really... um, based in Guelph so so we're not looking for people to contribute from outside except our cover artist who's in England but that's a different story um it's uh so we're focusing on Guelph writers we're not focusing on anything particularly um genre wise um right now our stable (laughs) is me who writes historical non-magical historical fiction is what I call it sometimes uh, a young adult fantasy, um, a murder mystery set in Montreal that's coming out at the end of October, I sort of women's fiction slash romance that came out last year, or earlier this year, I can't remember now, and two nonfiction books. So the focus is not is really on Guelph writing, and there's several other small presses in Guelph, so we're staying away from literary fiction and poetry, which is well handled by other small presses. How does the aspect of the collective work? Okay, so this started, um, my cover artist is also a writer, and we came up with this, I don't know, I don't even remember how it happened in the end, but I edit his books, he does my cover art, it was a, a barter situation, basically. So I'd been playing with that idea, and I'd been playing with the fact that, um, Many of the people I know who write and would really like to get their books out there don't have a lot of spare cash. And um, you know, between producing, a, hiring a decent editor, a cover artist, um, even the, even the um, reading fees that some publishers charge, it gets very expensive and it's a barrier for publication for many people. So being fortunate in that I don't need to make any money um, I started to, uh, the first person, the first book we published, she actually did, in theory, pay, although what she actually did, because what I asked her to do was make a contribution to a local literacy char- charity. Um, and then I, I thought about that, and I thought, well, yeah, that works, but it's not quite, still not really what I want to do. So then I got a bunch of my friends together at our writing room, which is not as anywhere near as fancy as this, I have to say, and um, um, said, look, guys, you know, what do you think about this idea that we share um, skills? So you beta read, you copy edit, you structurally edit. Um, and one of our members is very much, very outgoing. She's very good at approaching people and hosting events and those sorts of things. And um, we do this as a collective, and we share skills. And so we're trying it. <laughs> That's So far, it's working. Fantastic. So, yeah. So 100% of the royalties go to the author. Um, the author at this point pays for the cover art, but we, my cover artist is very, very reasonable in his prices. And um, everything else, nothing else costs anything. So 
That's and my cool. sister is partly involved, too. She's the one person. <laughs> always good to rope in family. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you said you had a book launch uh, just before we started chatting on air. You said you had a book launch for yes. your collective? Yes. Um, the book, Evidence of Uncertain Origin, which is a mystery set in Montreal during the FLQ crisis, is coming out on the Day of the Dead because it's a mystery. And the book launch is actually the 3rd of November in Guelph. So, yes, so I'm busy all yesterday and even first thing this morning I'm working on the proofs and doing corrections and things like that. And hopefully we'll have it in, have it in our hands for, while the official date is November 1st, we have a not quite as fancy as book, book, book fest, but we have an event called Book Bash in Guelph in October. And we will have it out for that is the plan. So. Well, clearly this is a labor of love to be part of this collective. Yeah. What is it that you get out of it? What is it that you enjoy most? Gosh, I don't know. That's so hard to answer. Um, I really love look making somebody else's dream come true. Um, I love editing, which is a really odd thing to say, but I do. Um, I like fine-tuning work. Um, and I like book layout. But I just like doing things like choosing the scene dividers and choosing the fonts and making the book, the interior of the book look as professional as we can. I argued with my, um, uh, some, well, not an argument maybe, but a discussion with some of my self-publishing or other indie press colleagues is that in small presses and self-publishing people are up against... Um, a stigma to start with, and when somebody's just browsing a bookcase or a bookshelf in a bookstore, if they pick up a book and it looks doesn't look professional, they're going to put probably going to put it down. We need our books to look as if they're as good. At, we need our books to be as good as the big houses, and that's what I'm aiming to do. So. You probably have less typos than yours because you have more time and they have le fewer people Possibly. to uh, But there's always typos. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> always. We're going to ask you to do a reading in a little minute. Um, and uh, did you want to tell us any more about the setting and background of your books uh, and maybe set up your reading? Yeah. Okay, so the setting of the Empire's series, which is now what it is, because there will be planned to be six books in total. Wow. The first book starts out in a world very, very reminiscent of, um, of Britain, post-Roman Britain. And if I had to guess a century, I'd say maybe 600s thereabout. Um, there's some geographical differences. There's clearly political differences in the way that the the world has evolved, but you could basically think of it, all right, what happened if Rome just, as they almost did, basically just vanished um, one day. But it's not an island, it's connected to the rest of the, of the continent. There were some other minor geographic differences like that. So you have a wall, um, the wall looms large in the series. You have a country to the north, although you don't know that in the first book. Um, and I purposely designed the world, so that as we you go through the series, the first three, you learn more and more about the larger world. So the first one, when my protagonist Lena is still quite young, is very much confined to to England. I would call it a, a 
analog of England, and the second one you move north of the wall to an analog of Scotland. And in the third one, we actually get to Rome, more or less, sort of a half-Rome-Byzantium combination. The geography's similar, except for the fact that Britain, the land's not an island, and the politics are very different, and the role of women and men in, are very different. In So Lena starts out in what she thinks is a almost, I mean, she's 18, she doesn't, it's all she's ever known, but it looks like, and it looks to the reader like a very perfect society in a way. She's very independent women. Over the course of the books, you learn that there's more of a price to have paid, been paid for that society than, than perhaps. And the other societies have different views of, of women's roles, men's roles. The acceptance of, of different sexualities is different in the worlds too. So, um, but if you have to, if I had to say what does the city look like, the city looks like Rome. Um, and it's based very heavily on 4th century Rome. Thank you, and thank you for coming all the way down from Guelph oh, to talk with us. Thank you for having me. So this excerpt from Empire's Daughters, about, which is the first book in the series, is about halfway through. And uh, the premise is that the women of, of the empire, as it is known at this point, have been asked to learn to fight to defend their country from invasion. So they've been training all summer. The um, invasion is expected at harvest time. And um, a few women have arrived from another village that is in less danger because it's not a coastal village to support them. So they are, and this, it is first person, um, and Lena is the narrator. So. We rehearse the attack, pulling two women from each cohort, different women each day, to be the invaders. We practice being still and keeping the ponies quiet. We practice with sword and shield and bow in the half-light of dawn and at dusk. We timed how long it took the mounted cohort to reach the harbor. We perfected signals, night bird calls, the bark of a fox. My cohort hid in lofts and tunnels and crawled and leapt and perfected landing on the balls of our feet, knives out, ready. On the third morning, just as the sun crested the ridge above the sheep pastures, a shout came from high in the hills. Horses silhouetted against the sky, two with riders, the rest riderless but saddled and carrying packs. Jill, with her eyesight honed by years of herding and hunting, spoke. The riders are women. They clattered into the village, pulling up outside the hall where we had, by habit, gathered. The riders were not much older than I. They wore their long hair tied back, carrying swords and scabbards on the saddles, shields on their backs, and spears in their hands. They sat on muscled, conditioned, and disciplined horses, warriors. I tried not to stare. Jill stepped forward. Welcome to Turvan. The riders dismounted. The shorter of the two women spoke. I am Diane, and this is Raza. We come from Han village in the grasslands. Four weeks ago, the three grassland villages met in joint council to determine our role in fighting last. We decided that half of us would go to the coastal villages to add to the fence. The others would stay to act as a rear guard against any Lestians who might slip through the coastal defenses. We brought what horses we could. The grassland villages bred and trained the majority of the horses for the army. The villages raised cattle, too, making from the tanned hides the saddles and bridles for the horses, for the empire. Horses, beef, and harness for everything else they traded. Thank you, Jill said. We welcome your assistance. I am Jill, council leader. Sarah and Gwen make the three, and this is Grania. She leads the mounted cohort. We expect attack within three days. Diane nodded. We had hoped to be on time. 
Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.